You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal. Workplace Perspective is a regular podcast series for employers and employees focusing on education, training, and the law to help organizations of all sizes develop and maintain successful workplace relationships. The opinions expressed by guests on Workplace Perspective do not necessarily reflect those of Sapphire Legal or its attorneys and should not be considered legal advice. And now, here's your host, founder and principal attorney at Sapphire Legal, Teresa McQueen. Thank you for joining me for Workplace Perspective. I'm Teresa McQueen. The effects of workplace harassment, discrimination, and retaliation ripple through all facets of the workplace in the form of decreased productivity and performance, escalating turnover rates, and a negative impact on brand value overall. So, for today's podcast, we'll be talking about the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission's Select Task Force Report on the Study of Harassment in the Workplace as a starting point for a discussion on ways to create a new dynamic in workplace anti-harassment training. We'll talk with Tina Rad of the Wagner Law Firm about the new Department of Fair Employment and Housing guidelines on effective workplace investigations and end the program with a few meeting etiquette tips. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Effective training starts with effective trainers. Training in the workplace to prevent harassment, discrimination, and retaliation, in my opinion, needs to go beyond simply educating individual employees as to what conduct is considered illegal, and instead needs to work systematically toward creating a top-down culture of respect and civility as a means of eliminating unlawful conduct from the workplace. And, as it so happens, in April of last year, my belief went mainstream, sort of, when the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission published its Select Task Force on the Study of Harassment in the Workplace report. With this report, the EEOC took a very objective view of its efforts over the last 30 years in helping to prevent discrimination and harassment in the workplace. I thought the report was terrific and really informative. It validated my thoughts on the effectiveness of anti-harassment training, or rather the ineffectiveness of anti-harassment training, especially California-mandated trainings, which is mainly that the status quo isn't working. It's simply not effective. Admonishing employees don't do this and don't say that, is just not enough. Scaring employers with war stories of six-figure settlements and shifty plaintiff's attorneys may inspire companies to hire trainers, but it does nothing to benefit the business or the workplace overall. The fact is, you're never going to change a harasser or someone who has a discriminatory animus or retaliatory intentions. But what you can do is create a workplace culture that shines a light on those individuals in your workforce who refuse to step up and behave like a professional. One of the other things I like about the report is that it's direct and honest in its conclusions. It clearly states, quote, training must change, unquote. It even goes so far to say that that much of the training done over the last 30 years, 30 years, mind you, has not worked as an effective tool to prevent harassment or discrimination. And why is that? Well, according to the report, it's because up to this point, trainings to prevent workplace harassment have been too focused on, quote, simply avoiding legal liability, unquote. So in other words, CYA training is not effective in preventing harassment, discrimination, or retaliation based on protected categories. For me, the most powerful statements made in the report come at the end 
where its authors discuss how new and different approaches to preventing harassment need to be explored. Now, of course, I like this part the best because it highlights my views that workplace civility training, business etiquette training, call it what you will, that focuses not on eliminating specific behaviors, the don't say this and don't do that mentality, but instead teaches consideration, respect, and honesty to create a productive work environment and give workers the tools they need to deal with difficult situations in a constructive way that promotes positive interactions between everyone in the workforce from the top down. It's interesting to note that current research shows that once people are exposed to rudeness in the workplace, they are three times less likely to help others and their willingness to share drops by more than half. That should blow everyone away. Imagine the effect on your corporate team if just one member who was exposed to rudeness or believed they were treated rudely was suddenly three times less likely to help others on the team. Or that same person's willingness to share their knowledge or expertise dropped by more than half. What a drain on productivity and a waste of resources. But I digress. What I really want to focus on is training. So we're going to take a short break And when we come back, I'll talk about the major reasons why training programs fail and share a few tips with you on how to create more effective trainings. You're listening to Workplace Perspective, an employment law podcast presented by Sapphire Legal. There are two major reasons why training programs fail. First, a lack of strategic planning. And by that, I mean a failure to set goals or develop strategies for attaining those goals, and also a failure to consider corporate culture or group dynamic, which ultimately leads to a failure to meet trainee expectations, resulting in a lack of buy-in and no success on the front line where you need it the most. The other reason training programs fail is that most programs are too trainer-centric, and I see that on two levels. First is that the training is viewed solely from the trainer's perspective, the convenience of the trainer, the comfort zone or the knowledge base of the trainer. The second level is trainings viewed strictly from the company's perspective, where the company considers first and foremost cost, internal or external marketing advantages, or litigation avoidance. This focus causes failure because it also leaves out or overlooks the key players, the trainees, people you need on board the most. Okay, if that's why trainings fail, let's switch gears and talk about ways to create better training programs. One of the first ways to create a better training program is to evaluate the current work environment. What are the risks or what continue to be the risk areas for your company? Are you seeing harassment, discrimination, maybe diversity issues, or is there retaliation going on in the workplace? If you're not sure, or to get some ideas, talk with in-house counsel or your outside general counsel to find out what types of complaints or lawsuits are trending and what they're seeing overall or with some of their other clients. Try to be as realistic as possible. Silently observe the work environment. Talk with employees at all levels. Consider one-on-one meetings or a confidential survey. Think in terms of providing long-term solutions curb the immediate CYA or litigation avoidance mentality. Think about the overall culture and how to improve or enhance it. Another way to improve a training program is to set goals. 
think ahead about what specifically and generally you're attempting to achieve with the training program. Are you initiating an anti-harassment program or revamping an existing model? Think about not just goals, but controls. This will help make sure trainees are not left behind in the process or that important steps are not overlooked. Refocus the training dynamic. Focus less on don't do this and don't do that training modules. Focus instead on professionalism and etiquette, generally accepted social norms that take into consideration diversity issues and empower a more civil work environment. Send the message that knowing how to get along in today's diverse intergenerational workplace is critical for success in meeting the challenges of this new millennium. Don't forget about buy-in. Training is most effective when you have the highest levels of buy-in. Upper management, of course, but also at the employee level. Consider the following as you plan and implement a training program. Stay on target and always deliver what you promise. Vary your training methodology to ensure maximum engagement and manage expectations. Be clear not only on what the goals are at each stage, but what role the trainee plays in achieving the overall goals. Here's a few final thoughts on training. There's no doubt as to the benefits of assuring that those whose job it is to carry out and enforce company policies are well-trained. It lowers the risk of litigation and damage to the brand. But as I said earlier, statistics are not showing that risk aversion-based training is working to actually lower the instances of harassment, discrimination, and retaliation in the workplace. A watershed change needs to take place. And training is the perfect starting or starting over point to begin that change. Etiquette-based training programs focusing on the overall workplace environment are a more likely avenue towards stemming workplace complaints of unprofessional behavior. And always keep in mind, training is intended to help people understand workplace boundaries and to lay the foundation for professional and acceptable workplace behavior. For your next training session, try incorporating some of our tips and then send us an email to perspective at sapphirelegal.com and tell us about your experience. Coming up next, I'll be talking with Tina Rad of the Wagner Law Firm about workplace investigations in light of the Department of Fair Employment and Housing's newly released Workplace Harassment Guide for California Employers. Stay with us. Welcome to Workplace Perspective, Tina, and thank you for joining me today to help round out today's podcast on workplace training. Today, Tina and I are going to be talking about the newly released Workplace Harassment Guide put out by the Department of Fair Employment and Housing for California Employers. But before we jump into that, Tina, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about Wagner Law and your legal background? Thanks, Teresa, for having me on your inaugural podcast episode. I joined Wagner Law two years ago as an investigator after seven years of practicing employment litigation at law firms. Wagner Law is a boutique law firm devoted exclusively to workplace investigations. We conduct investigations throughout the state of California and across the country, and our three investigators are all alumni of major law firms like O'Melveny and Myers and Shepard Mullen. Collectively, we have conducted hundreds of workplace investigations involving virtually every type a workplace misconduct issue. That's awesome. So what was your impression of the guide? Was there anything new that you found in there? Or maybe you can share with us some of your biggest takeaways. 
Yeah, I thought this guide was a nice little piece of guidance for people doing investigations, and it offers some similar concepts to existing guidance issued by the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, and guidance from the Association of Workplace Investigators. But a few things that did stand out to me are the detailed factors to aid investigators in making credibility determinations, which are similar to the EEOC factors, but not exactly the same. Also, there are some recommended practices, especially relating to choosing a qualified investigator, especially a qualified one as opposed to an unqualified one. And there's some interesting information about anonymous complainants and how to handle anonymous complaints and reticent complainants who may not want to talk to you or have their name disclosed. I thought it was great too. And and I thought it it had some really interesting practical information for people trying to pick up and do an investigation on your own. But I think I'm kind of with you. I think what I got out of that was picking the investigator. It's a really important but overlooked aspect, I think, of the employer's duty to investigate claims and then take remedial action where it's necessary. And at least from a plaintiff side perspective, in litigation, I always focused really heavily on who did the investigation and how the investigation was conducted when it came to discovery and especially deposition. Is that kind of what you see from your perspective as well when you're conducting investigations? Yeah, absolutely. And as the guide points out, it's important to investigate where appropriate and do that quickly. So the guide says if you receive a complaint of harassment or other wrongful behavior, you should give it top priority to determine if a formal investigation is needed. And that, of course, leads us to choosing the right investigator. And I agree. And the guide agrees that who you choose is really important. And part of that's true because a trend that we've been noticing a lot in litigation lately is that the parties often end up litigating not only the plaintiff's underlying claims, but also the quality of the employer's investigation into those claims. So a poorly conducted investigation or the wrong investigator could be very damaging to the employer's credibility, especially to a jury. So we do tell employers and their attorneys, step one, make sure you get the right person for the job. So how do you choose that? I think that's a that's a big thing because, you know, do you go with that? It's usually, in my experience, it's just been the HR person. And I know that's not everybody's, I'm sure that, you know, the third parties get in there, but in my experience, it's usually been the HR person or do you go with that outside investigator? And if you go with an outside investigator, do you choose just an attorney that does employment law or do you look at one of the myriad, you know, HR consultants who are kind of doing that sort of work? How do you decide? The guide gives us kind of two aspects of choosing the right investigator, whether internal or external. And those are first, impartiality. Secondly, training and qualifications. So the threshold inquiry is, do we have the right person in-house to do this? If we have an HR person who's always doing the investigations, well-trained to do that, then that may be a clear choice. But sometimes there's reason to consider outsourcing to someone on the outside. And in terms of impartiality, it's critical to ensure that the person chosen to conduct the investigation can be impartial. And there's certainly situations where that's not possible. For example, if the HR person happens to be friends with the complaining or accused party. And there's times where even if the investigator believes they can still be neutral, or there's always going to be a perception that they weren't in certain circumstances. So common examples are the accused party is higher up the reporting chain than the HR person or the investigator, like a CEO, for example, or it's another HR person or the HR person's friends with them. So it's unlikely the investigator can be truly impartial in those circumstances. And even if they can, it's just extremely unlikely that a jury would believe that they were. And so that's when we would recommend bringing in an outside investigator. 
And that's one of the common situations where we're retained to come in as truly impartial third-party investigators. And of course, the higher the stakes in terms of the investigation and the complaint and the seriousness of that, the more important it is to choose the right person. So if there's likely to be impending litigation or there's already a charge with the EEOC or government agency, it may be prudent to incur that extra cost now and save thousands or even tens of thousands later. Then the other aspect is the training and qualifications issue, as you asked about. So if you do choose to go outside the company, the guide makes a major point about picking a qualified outside investigator. And we give presentations to law firms about common investigation issues and ethical issues. And one thing that's repeatedly surprised even the most seasoned employment attorneys is this business and professions code section cited here in the guide, which says that an external investigator, meaning any investigator who's not a company employee, must be either a licensed private investigator or an attorney, which means hiring an HR consultant to do an investigation from the outside is specifically prohibited. In fact, it's a misdemeanor, and many clients and their counsel don't realize that. And wow. Of course, not only that, yeah, but it also, uh, that's going to open up the investigation to attack down the line because plaintiff's counsel is going to argue that, well, the company didn't conduct an investigation in good faith or didn't take it seriously because they didn't even hire a qualified investigator under the code to conduct the investigation. Wow. That's, and I didn't know that either. I didn't know there was a BMP code that, that addressed that issue. And maybe some people did, but I, that to me is really interesting. No, you're not alone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's good to know, right? Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. So if a company chooses someone in-house, then are they held to the same standards that you just talked about? So the guide does say the investigator, whoever it is, even in-house person, must have proper training and experience in conducting investigations. And for very serious or complex allegations, you'd want someone who has prior experience conducting investigations or perhaps that type of investigation so they can get it right. So if you have a complex allegation against your CEO, it may not be the best time for your brand new HR person to try their hand at investigations after a two-hour seminar. So (laughs) for general purposes, there are various ways to get the required training and the guide provides some suggestions for that. So I think for the in-house person, the big stumbling block with HR or other internal people is that impartiality issue. And an outside person is just much more likely to be impartial and be perceived that way. And I think it's interesting because the training of the person really does come out a lot in deposition. I mean, it's always been a big focus when I was litigating on the HR person. So how did you learn how to do this? How were you trained? Where did you get that training? How much, how many investigations have you done? So those are really true live areas of questioning that really matter because they come up again and again through the litigation as you, as you move through it. You mentioned impartiality, and it made me think of a a recent case that a colleague told me about where they did have an in-house person. Uh, There was allegations of sexual harassment, and the HR person who was tasked with doing the investigation, they had said and came out in discovery that when they conducted the investigation, they determined there was no harassment, but the basis for that was interesting because the basis for finding there was no harassment was one, that the harasser had sworn on their child's head that they would never do such a thing, which I thought Mm -hmm. was an interesting way to go about that. And the other one was this idea that, well, I've worked with so-and-so for so many years and they would never do that. They would just never be that way. And I think that's just one instance among many. And it just seems to be a big stumbling block where the investigator has difficulty being fair and impartial. And it sounds like 
that's kind of the experience that you've run into as well. I think sometimes, because if you really look at it objectively, sweeping something under the rug isn't protecting the company because you're actually setting up the company for a future lawsuit by not taking remedial action now, and you may be allowing additional harm to incur and more people to be affected by it. So it's so important to make sure that internal investigations are conducted by someone who is well-trained and has the appropriate experience and is impartial and won't feel pressured to accept their colleagues' assurances when there's objectively a good reason to keep digging. And I think that awkwardness that you point out there is exactly the type of situation where if there's a friendship or a relationship or the investigator knows these people have worked with them for a really long time, it just is human nature that it's going to make it difficult for them to not accept what someone's saying on face value and to continue to press them. Whereas as an outside investigator, I don't know them and that's my job and it, it removes that awkwardness and allows us to get better information a lot of times. Yeah, I could see that. And then, you know, you kind of mentioned this a little bit before, but the situation where it's the employee's perception that the investigation process really is just a means of sort of rubber stamp the company actions. I guess you could see that on both sides in a, an in-house investigation or an impartial third party coming in to investigate. But have you run into those sort of situations in your practice? We get that question all the time, people asking us, well, the company hired you, so how can you really be impartial? Isn't it in your best interest to just rubber stamp what the company wants you to say and say they weren't doing anything wrong? But as I always explain, the company's hiring me to find out what really happened so they can assess their risks and decide what action to take. And if I don't give them that information, I am not providing not only am I not complying with my fiduciary duty as an attorney, but I am also just not providing the service that they hired me for. So if the outcome doesn't look good for them, it's in their best interest to know that so they can correct it and prevent future liability. And they need to know the real facts so they can make decisions about whether to litigate this case because maybe the outcome looks pretty good for them or settle the matter at hand early because it doesn't look good and they feel bad about what happened. So what employees often don't understand is that companies are businesses that want to minimize risk and covering something up doesn't help them with that. So usually when businesses hire us, it is in good faith because they really want to know what's going on and they want the findings to be credible. It's interesting. One of the points the guide made was not to reach legal conclusions. And I thought this was really interesting because it, it made me think of the case where I actually brought in Tina's firm to investigate an employee's claims of sexual harassment. And it just made sense to do it. Kind of the things you were talking about all sort of clicked. This idea of impartiality, the idea that there was someone in a position to investigate, but it might have been a difficult problem based on the corporate structure and all that. So one of the things I have to say that I appreciated, at least from an outside employment counsel's perspective, was the report that we got at the end. It didn't reach any legal conclusions. Again, this point I thought about not reaching legal conclusions just sort of struck with me, but it spoke my language and I liked that. So it talked about the facts in light of the relevant legal standards, and it really helped me in sort of guiding the client on how best to move forward using the information that we had. So 
Can you share with the listeners how it is that you investigate without actually providing a legal conclusion? Yeah, actually, we strongly agree with the guide on this because as neutrals, we don't want to be seen as making legal arguments. So we make factual findings and factual conclusions. And the furthest we might go is applying those to the client's internal policies and determining if a policy violation occurred. But as the guide points out, the employer is usually in a better position to interpret its own rules. But one benefit of hiring an an outside investigator who is also an attorney is that exactly what you pointed out. We understand what legal arguments an employer's outside counsel is going to make if the case goes to litigation, and we can ensure that we made the underlying factual findings and conclusions that they're going to need to counsel the client or make their arguments in litigation. We were all formal litigators, so I have been on the other side of that myself. And so that way, the client may be able to decide based on the findings yeah, it looks like we're going to face some liability. We might want to settle here, or they might want to uh, say in connection with talking to their counsel and have their counsel say, hey, look, these facts look great for a motion for summary judgment, and you may want to go ahead and fight this. And so it helps them to give the employer the best advice. So we provide the additional benefit as attorneys of being cognizant about what legal conclusions can be drawn from our report while at the same time remaining neutral and not venturing into the territory of advocacy or argument. Well, So far, we've talked about choosing an investigator, the importance of impartiality and not reaching legal conclusions, but what are some other takeaways from the guide that you think our listeners should be aware of? Sure. So I think in addition to those recommended practices we talked about, about impartiality and qualifications uh, and the credibility factors that the guide provides, which are a helpful list of factors that investigators can consider when making credibility determinations and especially in a he said, she said situation, trying to resolve that. I think another one is handling anonymous complaints and reticent complaints. Yeah, how do you handle anonymous complaints? I think that's difficult. One option is we've seen a rise in anonymous complaint systems or tip lines. The great thing about these is the evolution of features in the technology that helps investigators get more information. So some of these have options to do an anonymous live chat with the complaining party or upload some questions for them that they can answer anonymously, or the complainant can upload documents to the system that supports their claims, and that would aid, aid the investigator. So I do recommend that if a company decides to have an anonymous complaint system, that it have these capabilities, because then when they get an anonymous complaint, they have some recourse for how to get additional information information and how to best investigate that. But of course, sometimes that's not an option and you just get a typed letter left on the HR person's desk. And so (laughs) in that sort of situation, the guide suggests, and we do do this, doing an environmental assessment. So talking to some other people in the department or other people who might have relevant information about the accused party to see if they've heard or experienced something that made them uncomfortable or they have heard anything that matches up to what the complaining party has said. And that can really help if they do have that type of information, help the investigator make a better determination about whether these things are really going Going on. But as the guide points out, one thing you should not be doing is ignoring these anonymous yeah. complaints. That is the one thing you don't get. Well, to. yeah, I mean, that would be, <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> this idea of fear, employee fear when it comes to complaining can just be a big stumbling block for a company. And I read an interesting EEO statistic that three out of four individuals who experience harassment never even talked to a supervisor or their manager before they filed a complaint. I just think that's amazing. And I think it's great if these trends, you know, I love this idea of a chat line or all this technology to use that. And I think it's great if it's making employers more aware of what's happening in the workplace. I think it's a terrific 
terrific trend. I hope it continues. I want to ask you, have you ever run into a situation where the identity of the person who's making the allegation or the allegations is found out or known simply by what it was that was said? And if you have, how do you recommend handling that type of situation in an investigation? That does happen. And that's why it's important for companies to have policies against retaliation in their handbook and also for that to be emphasized during investigations as well. So we do tell witnesses up front, we'll do our best to keep the interview as confidential as possible, but we can't promise complete confidentiality, not only because we need to report our findings and conclusions to the company, but also because there are sometimes situations where, for example, there's only two parties to a conversation and this person tells me something about it, then I need to talk to the other person about it. That person's probably going to be able to figure out where I got that information, even if I don't share the name of the source. So we do like to be upfront about that and explain that we get it, but we try to avoid it every once in a while. There's nothing we can do to avoid it while still doing a thorough investigation. And that way we help people understand upfront so they don't feel betrayed, but they also know we're aware of the things that they're concerned about. And we're going to take that into account rather than running like a bull through a china shop. So that's one piece of it. And then the second piece is we tell them that if you feel you're being, you're being retaliated against for participating in this investigation, to either report it to us immediately, the investigator, or use an avenue available through the company like HR. And that provides people some assurance that they have some recourse. So it helps ensure the company's aware of any retaliation concerns that are arising throughout the investigation, helps them take action as soon as possible to avoid further problems. And it really makes the company more credible when they have that system in place that they ensure nothing bad's going to happen to people who complain. And if it does, there's something you can do about it. Have you ever had anyone contact the company either after or in the middle of an investigation claiming that they're being retaliated against and and then they brought you back in to investigate that claim as well? Yeah, we have definitely had that happen. And often the company will have us look into that retaliation claim because we're already familiar with the issues and the players and the details. But sometimes they'll choose to handle that piece of it on their own. And again, this is something the company is going to want to know. The last thing the company wants is to not hear about this problem before they have another lawsuit on their hands for retaliation. So companies have an interest in preventing retaliation so that people trust their processes down the line for future investigations. And so the company avoids potential liability from people bringing their own complaints. And so it's important for the company to create an atmosphere where employees can feel that their complaints are heard so they can get a chance to remedy the situation before the employee simply quits and files a lawsuit or government agency charge. Is there an aspect kind of of what you do where you feel like you're educating employees as well as the employers as you work through the process? We find in a lot of our investigations that the employees' allegations arise out of a lack of knowledge, perhaps, of the law or why management made certain decisions. And often employees who lack that knowledge will fill in the blanks with their own speculation on what the law is or what actually was happening behind the scenes. Right. And once they form a theory, they'll start engaging in pattern recognition. And so I do find that sometimes a little more communication or transparency from management would help. And sometimes throughout the investigation process, as I ask questions and these issues come up, they start to understand maybe there's another version of this story that isn't the version I've created for myself with the limited information that I had. I think that's a great benefit because I found in in litigation, which I think happens in the investigation process as well, like you're saying, lots of employees believe that the conduct of the employer to be more morally wrong as opposed to legally actionable. And I think 
it's really difficult to shift that focus. Uh, you know, my aspect is start before anything happens and start educating everybody on, on what's actually, what are the rights, what's legal, what's not legal. But I like this idea that it, this aspect of the investigation has to it where, there, where it is actually educating and you can potentially get people to understand both positions. I, I really like that. Yeah, there's almost a little bit of a mediation aspect to it sometimes, and I think you're right. I I hear people, for example, throwing around the term hostile work environment when they simply mean that they didn't get along with their coworker or their boss, and that is not the legal meaning of that term. There is no protection for personality conflicts at work that aren't connected to a protected characteristic or a protected activity. So if the employee knew that, they might have saved the company a bunch of time and money hiring an outside person to investigate a complaint that sounds like it has legal significance, but then it turns out it's not connected to anything protected at all. And one of the things that we pride ourselves on at our firm is making sure that we get that information about whether the claim is truly actionable or it's more of a personnel issue. There is also some, there's a fine line to be walked there by investigators of trying to get the right information, really understanding if it is a legally significant issue. Not to say the company shouldn't do anything if it's not, but just so the company understands the situation. And if it's not, if it's a personnel issue, maybe I can hand it off as the outside investigator back to the company and say, you've got a personality conflict, maybe you can get them in a meeting, maybe you can get this guy some anger management. There's a lot of different options there, certainly that shouldn't be ignored, even if it's not a legal issue. And that's all helpful to the company's operations and having a happy workforce. The guide states that, I love this part of it, this is one of the things, I thought this was a bit of a, of a, of of an interesting statement to make. And I thought it would be fun to to address with you. So the guide states that relevant witnesses should be interviewed and relevant documents should be reviewed, quote unquote. But then it kind of goes on to say, this doesn't mean that every witness should be interviewed or every document should Mm -hmm. be reviewed, but instead the investigator should exercise discretion. So for those who are trying to do these investigations and use the guide to help them in that, how do you decide who to interview? It's this reasonable standard uh, or relevant standard that's sort of hard to put into context. Yeah, that's a great question. So we are guided by some case law that tells us the standard for how far to go in an investigation is conducting a reasonable investigation. And the gist of these cases is there's no need to interview every possible witness because obviously if you wanted to get to the bottom of every single detail, every investigation could take years and you could spend millions of dollars on even the smallest of claims. So it's clear that you do have to draw the line somewhere. So where is that? We do consider various issues in making that decision of when to say when, again, guided by the case law. But one thing that we do, we do our interviews in batches and reevaluate. So if I have three people all saying they saw the exact same thing, then maybe there's no need to keep asking other people, even though there's 10 people in the department. If I have two wildly different descriptions of the same incident, I may need a couple more people. And then after I've interviewed a few people, I might go straight to the accused party and they might admit it. So if they admit it, I don't need to keep beating a dead horse and asking other people if they saw this thing. We only need to keep looking into disputed issues. There's also, on top of that, a more holistic meta view that develops as the investigation goes on. If everything the complaining party has said has been corroborated by text messages and emails and other people, and there's absolutely nothing alleged has been disputed, well, it's more likely that I can say this investigation's over and I believe this person. But if I'm in a he said or she said situation where everything's disputed and I'm trying to make a credibility determination between the complaining and accused party, well, then I might need more information and that's when I might need to take 
take further steps and it might take a little longer. So what we do as investigators is we promise we'll interview all relevant witnesses, but that doesn't mean every single witness that's been suggested. There's many times where you know enough is enough without talking to every single person. And you may have said this, but who are you telling that standard to? Are you telling it to the interviewee or the complainant or the employer? Who gets that message? Actually, we do tell every witness, the complaining party and the accused party, that will interview all relevant witnesses. But that's to make them understand there's that qualifier, the relevant qualifier, because we do often have situations where people have a list of 10 people they want you to talk to. And when you haven't talked to three of them yet, they get suspicious and they follow up with you. And, and I'll remind them that, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'll talk to all relevant witnesses and sometimes I'll explain to them. If something's not disputed, then I don't necessarily need to talk to every person. And that gives them a little bit more insight into the investigation process, which otherwise might seem like a black box to them, that I'm making some judgments, but it doesn't mean I'm not conducting a thorough investigation. Yeah, I really like that aspect of communication and, and that almost that teaching aspect to it and sort of helping kind of behind the scenes to do what you can to educate everybody as far as the process and the particular case. Yeah, there's that education aspect, but there's also the importance of keeping to confidentiality and making sure that you're not compromising the process as part of the education. So that's, again, more of a balancing act that it's important to have an investigator with experience and training and how to balance those things. That is an excellent point. Point. And I want to thank you for being our first guest on Workplace Perspective and for sharing your expertise and your experience with our listeners. You really gave some great insights and some really useful information. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And if your listeners want to know more about some of these topics or about us and our law firm, they can find some articles on these issues in our bios at www.wagonerlaw.com. That's www.wagenerlaw.com. If you'd like more information about Tina Rad or the Wagner Law Firm, you can also find links for each on our website podcast page. Stick with us in our remaining few minutes for some etiquette tips that will help you be more effective in business meetings. One of my most requested etiquette presentation topics is conducting effective business meetings. Whether you're running a meeting or attending a meeting, and whether it's internal or external, how you conduct yourself is an important part of building a positive personal brand. According to Emily Post, the principles of etiquette are consideration, respect, and honesty. They're the cornerstones for building successful relationships in your personal life and your business life. As we end today's podcast, I want to share with you a few meeting etiquette tips, focusing on these three core principles of etiquette. First off, showing consideration. There are three key things you can do to show consideration in a meeting. First, be prepared. Review the agenda before the meeting. Think about it. Ask questions. What can I do to prepare? Should I bring anything? Secondly, be punctual. Arriving too early can interfere with your host's preparation, and arriving too late distracts other participants in the meeting. Always notify the meeting organizer ahead of time if you know you'll be unavoidably late, and enter obtrusively when you are late and apologize without interrupting. Always try to let the leader know before the meeting starts if you have to leave early. And lastly, you can show consideration in a meeting by turning off your cell phone or other electronic devices. Showing respect. One of the easiest ways to show respect in a meeting is to participate with interest. Remain attentive and focused, even if you're not the one speaking. And resist the temptation to hold side conversations or perform tasks that are not related to the meeting. 
meaning don't text or try to work on other projects during the meeting. Don't sit at the head or the end of a conference table unless you're the one leading the meeting, and always try to respond to the meeting request even if a response is not required. And lastly, our core principle, honesty. Honesty is, of course, about being truthful, but it's also about being honest with yourself as well as being sincere and genuine in your actions. A few ways to show honesty when it comes to meeting etiquette are to first and foremost treat the meeting as job time and not downtime or fun time. Secondly, when it comes to meetings, two key factors play an important role, time management and value. You need to be honest with yourself about both. If you question the necessity for holding the meeting in the first place, or if you don't see the value in having had the meeting at all, try to avoid showing frustration during the meeting and instead make an effort to bring your concerns to the organizer's attention after the meeting in a way, of course, that voices your concern, but also shows respect and consideration. And finally, be honest in your efforts by following through on the assignments you were given or the tasks you volunteered to perform. Taking any one of these tips to heart will help you not only build a positive personal brand, but will also help in building and maintaining those all-important business relationships. I hope you'll pass along our web address, sapphirelegal.com, to your friends and colleagues. Be sure to check out the archive section on our website for previous podcasts. This has been a Sapphire Legal production. Claudia Shamba was the assistant producer, and our music was composed by Stephen Versaloni. Join us next time for another episode of Workplace Perspective, raising the bar at workplaces everywhere.